Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of To Be Determined with Bill and Dan. This time talking about a story about a group of explorers who leave a legacy they did not quite expect. That's right, we're talking about the story that's called Old Testament from a writer that many of you will know, even if you don't know that you know him, Jerome Bixby. Yeah, he's uh, one of those guys that, you know, you, again, doesn't get a lot of credit, I think, in the, the sci-fi author community, unless you really know who he is. You know, you look at some of the work he did, he wrote four episodes, four highly acclaimed episodes of the original Star Trek series. He wrote, uh, I forget which one of the Twilight Zone series episodes. And uh, I think he actually also wrote, which some people might be familiar with, The Last Man on Earth. Oh, that's right. I forgot that he is the author of that one. Yeah, he is the lesser known of the Bixby's from television, the other one being Bill Bixby, who, of course, was the original Incredible Hulk. <laughs> and, of course, uh, Bixby now is also the digital personal assistant for Samsung. So if you try to Google Bixby, expect to get a lot of advertising. And despite the title of this one that is, again, Old Testament, we're not really going biblical on this, at least not in the way you think we might be. I suppose we should kick it off a little bit with a little overview of the characters like we usually do. We're talking about a couple of people here, Ray and Mary Karadak, who are a few explorers out doing what explorers do in deep space in 1950s and 60s science fiction stories. As it turns out, they're married, which, of course, is a little bit of an idealistic viewpoint of 1950s and 60s relationships that a guy and his wife can jump into a 60-foot-long spaceship, spend months and months or years cruising around the universe, and apparently not get on each other's nerves. Or at least that they are there together so that they can help each other, you know, get through the rigors of, of exploration and space travel and all that downtime and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that they're a married couple as well, because I don't think any of our stories have had the two, like, principal characters that were married. We've had married people on, but not necessarily like the core of the story in the way that these these two are. Yeah, and at least in this case, right, you know, his wife, or Ray's wife, Mary, they actually obviously give her credit for being a scientist and being able to apparently navigate the ship and all sorts of other things, which are, you know, again, as we've said, a little rare for the time and looking at how women are normally treated in some of these stories. But uh, so, hey, good for Bixby. Yeah, she's very much his equal in, in terms of their exploration, in terms of their science, and in terms of even their decision-making. Uh, it's, it's very much a, a, an equal, inequality-based give-and-take, so that's a pretty cool thing to see. So again, those are the main characters, Ray and Mary. Uh, we do have a few other ones which you kind of are inferred they, by some of the things that go on in the story. You've got... Um, a Syrian infant who is presumed male. Um, they do land on this planet, I think it's Sirius Four, and that's, of course, where the Syrians live. There is a father of aforementioned infant, and there is a priest that is mentioned as part of the Syrian culture. So those five individuals pretty much comprise the entire cast of characters. And yeah, I'll insert really quickly here that we do learn, in fact, I think that's on the final page of the story, that the Syrian infant is, in fact, a male. We'll come back to that later. Kicking off the story, Bill, where, does we, where do we start? Well, the, the story begins with our couple having just come back into their spaceship from having been on the planet exploring, and they're talking a little bit about the planet. It's a, it's a developing culture that they have stumbled across it's an alien race, again, the Syrians, who look basically like grapefruit with legs and ribbons coming out the top. And 
they are trying to figure out basically what's next and, and, and what they're up to when they make a discovery. And what's that discovery, Dan? That discovery would be the Syrian infant who uh, Ray finds underneath his bed of all places on board the ship. And, of course, this is kind of an unusual thing. And they attempt to figure out how this infant actually got on board. They discuss for a while that, well, he probably couldn't have gotten here on his own. He's way too young. And eventually they poke around a little bit. They find food in a basket and they go, oh, it's a foundling. Some Syrian mother must have left this baby on board for an unknown reason. So they start interacting with the child. You know, they, they find out it's, well, I don't know, happy, but it's alert. It's got its little tentacles whipping around trying to grab onto objects. And then they're like, well, what are we going to do with this infant? That's right. And they debate leaving regardless. However, they know that that's resigning the, the infant to the, the darkest of fates. They, they don't know what to feed it. They don't know what to give it in terms of liquid sustenance or anything like that. So they assume that if they take it with them, it's a sure thing that the infant will die. But their prime directive, so to speak, is a set of standards that precludes them from going back to planet side once they have left for fear of interfering with the civilization that is less advanced than theirs. So they don't want to take the infant back to its own people. Right. And that planet, of course, it's in the text, they refer to it as being like 30 or 40 below zero as the average temperature, right? Another reason why they figure the infant can't survive. So they kind of go back and forth for a little bit. And they're like, well, you know, this directive be darned. We're going to go back, put the infant back, and hope nobody sees us, and try to avoid any type of contamination, regardless of what they've already done. And so that's indeed what they decide to do. And they sneak back to the planet. Well, they, they fly back to the planet. They, they park their spaceship far out from the village that they presume that the infant has come from. And it's Ray who sneaks the child back in and is is going to try to find some place to, to drop it surreptitiously, decides against leaving it in the brush just in case it gets missed, leaves it in the middle of, of the village, and then walks away and heads back to the spaceship. And in the meantime, right, in between the time where they decide to bring the, the infant back and the time they actually land, we jump into a completely different narrative, which is from it's sort of a first-person narrative and a very sort of primitive, broken grammar by one of, the, one of the inhabitants of the planet, which is, in fact, the infant's father. The way it's written, you get this idea, you know, it's kind of a very sort of, you know, og-like fire kind of, kind of speech. Where, where he relates, basically, his side of the story. Right, and so this is where we learn that the fears that they have about leaving an influence on the society, or the fears that they have about being seen and what the repercussions of that might be, this is where we see that stuff actually playing out. And it primarily comes down to two main voices, that is the Syrian father of the infant and a priest who is sort of the... Well, he's the he's kind of the the knucklehead the the jerk in charge of everything. He's he's kind of one of the, he takes advantage of his power. Let's put it that way. So he's a, he's a priest, but he's a bad soul kind of person. Yeah, he's basically got the society rigged where he's the one who tells everybody what to do, what's right and wrong. And we find out that when this infant was born, the mother actually died. And in this culture, the priest says, oh, well, that makes the infant evil. The infant's got to be sacrificed because it killed the mother at childbirth. You know, that kind of thing. 
And then the the father kind of goes on, pretty much disagrees with this whole concept, and and says, oh, you know, for many thousands of sons, the priests of this culture have been basically getting fat and happy off the off the rest of the people. And he's starting to question, is this really the way things should be? But he really can't do anything about it. The priest gets the the best mates and the best place to live and the best food and the most food and and all that kind of stuff. So just like any any society where someone who has power for whatever reason takes advantage of it and and uses that station to basically make their lives better than anybody else's, that's the priest. And that's exactly what we're talking about here. And so the father represents one of those voices of well, one questioning and then in the end rebellion where he begins to think, "Yeah, this this seems like a bad system." And there's one person who's making all the profits here, and, and the rest of us are kind of screwed. So what if the rest of us said things should be different, and why, why do they have to be this way? And so he represents that voice of revolution. So during this time, he's also, not only does he give us a little background about you know, what's going on with the infant, what's going on with the culture, but he describes from their perspective sort of their encounter with the humans. They see them arrive, they kind of wander around, um, the priest says they're, they're bad you know, they're horrible people, they, they're bad gods from the sky, and they need to go away. But the guy looks at him, he's like, hey, these people are there's kind of wandering around, they're looking at stuff, I don't see why they're bad, even though that's what the priest says. But at the same time, he sees this as an opportunity, because while the humans are in town, he's like, well, if my infant stays here, the priest is going to sacrifice him, so we're going to put him on the human ship while the humans are wandering around in the village, and hope that something better happens to him as a result. Right. And so he's playing out a parallel problem, if you will, to what the the Caradax did when they were trying to decide what to do upon discovering the infant. So again, the dad knows if he stays, he dies. If he goes, he might live, he might die, but at least he's got a chance of a different, well, he's got a chance of a life. And these people don't seem to be bad. They haven't done anything destructive. They haven't interfered with anything. So Maybe they're actually good, and, and maybe they can take care of him. So anyway, the humans end up leaving the planet and unknowingly taking the infant with them. The priest rails against the humans, saying, like I said before, they're bad gods, and looks around for the child he wanted to sacrifice and says, oh, these bad gods, humans, stole the child, and therefore it's just terrible, and we need to have some kind of retribution the father says, hey, in the sort of rebellious spirit, you know, maybe that's wrong. He says the humans are good and that maybe the humans took the child away so the priest couldn't sacrifice him because kind of in a reach says, well, the these gods think ch- sacrificing children is wrong. And that's why these beings took away the infant. This gets the society into a little bit of a tizzy here, right? You've got the, the priest on one side, you've got the father on the other side. And the, the townsfolk are kind of split. They don't know what to do. The priest and the father are escalating the conversation. Each one says the other one's lying. And if, depending on who you believe, the whole future of the tribe is at risk. And right on cue, here come the Karadax. Well, or at least here comes Ray in his spacesuit, coming in, carrying the infant. And everybody in the village watches as he drops the, the Syrian child back into the the middle of the village and turns and heads out makes no attempt to interact with them makes no attempt to talk to them or anything like that because again it goes against the prime directive but all of his actions are nonetheless witnessed by the villagers 
And now that brings the, the conflict, if you will, between the priest and the father to a, an ultimate climactic moment. And one important point to note is that after Ray sneaks, well, he sneaks into the town in morning, assuming that all the townsfolk will be asleep to deliver the child. And when he leaves, he says, oh, I thought I saw like a flash of light when I left, but yeah, that right. can't be. I have no idea what's going on, but I'm just going to ignore it and, and keep moving and get off this planet so I don't screw anything up anymore. And so the Caridex back on their spaceship, stow their gear, and they head off once again to their next planetary exploration, and they prepare themselves for it. They're preparing themselves for cryosleep. Am I remembering that right? I'm not sure if they're coming out of it or what they're doing. But anyway, the, yeah. I guess you're getting to the, the idea that Ray notices he's got a, his flashlight is missing, or he calls it a pencil flashlight, which I guess is what we would call a pen light nowadays. Anyway, some little flashlight. He's like, ah, where'd this thing go? I can't find it. Mary's like, ah, it's around here somewhere. Don't worry about it. And they completely forget about the whole incident. Right. And so what is gone and forgotten for them, and presumably no one from their society is coming back to Sirius 4 anytime soon. So no one is around to watch the impact of this little encounter. And in fact, we get flung far into the future. We don't know how far into the future. And the whole sort of style of the story, the voice of the story transforms from what we have become accustomed to, which is the shifting narrative, the human voice, and the Syrian voice, that sort of broken, you know, cave person kind of thing. Although that, that broken Syrian voice does come back right near the very end, where yeah, we find out from, from the father, his first person account of what transpired when the infant got returned, and shortly thereafter. So again, in the sort of primitive speak, he says that, he recounts the story, the child gets returned unharmed by the quote-unquote good gods. The priest says, oh, the child's back, we should still kill him. But the child accidentally activates the flashlight, which he apparently somehow got out of Ray's pocket. And the flashlight kind of spins around, hits the priest just by accident. All the villagers go, oh my god, this is a sign from the gods. The priest is then killed by the villagers. His remains are fed to the animals outside the village. And everything changes from that point on. That's right. They transform into a society that is really about the community and about taking care of one another. So instead of killing off children who have had mothers die in childbirth, instead the village shares responsibility for them. And, and women who have children take care of the orphans. And, and so that's just like the symbolic moment or the symbolic value change that is supposed to signal to us that it's part of the moral evolution of this culture, this, the moral evolution of this species or race. And then just like you referred to, we get this drastic shift in tone, right? We go from the sort of broken, uh, very primitive English first-person account of the events, and it jumps into this very sort of scriptural, very ceremonial speak where it where they say, oh, and lo, the child did smite the priest with the light. And then the villagers, they didn't did drag the priests out of the village to be fed to the dogs, you know, yada, yada, yada. You get the idea, right? You know, anybody who's read any type of, you know, scriptural, scriptural or biblical or, you know, text like that, it's that kind of high, sort of highfalutin speak. I don't really know what we call it. And there's a, a person later on, or it, as the story ends, I should say, there's a person who is 
referred to as a student of the Galak Federation, who closes the Syrian Bible, and in doing so says, always they come to fill a need. But where do they come from? What really are their acts? Where do they go? So he's talking about these gods that came down and transformed, the, the good gods that, that transformed this culture, this society, and their actions of returning this, uh, this male child resulted in the transformation of the Syrian people and of their culture. And then he kind of goes, meh, closes the book, picks up the next one and moves along. That's right. And that is how the story ends. So we've got a lot of stuff going on in this story. It's a story that, that both makes reference to a lot of ideas that were becoming or that, that had become established in terms of, of responsibility and ethics for, for space exploration and, and cultural differences. You know, it, it sets up a lot of ideas that we see play out in a number of other science fiction literary excursions, whether that means text, you know, novels and short stories or film and television. There's a lot, a lot of stuff that's going on here. And specifically, I think you're referring to the idea of the prime directive, right? Oh, yeah. Which, of course, you know, got enshrined in Star Trek in later generations, even though it's actually been around, you know, the more generalized term for it would be the alien non-interference directive. And that actually goes way back to a a novel in 1937 by a guy named Olaf Stapleton, and he made this novel called The Star Maker. Uh, he was apparently very influential, even though I actually hadn't heard much about him until I was doing this research. But his idea was there was these, these symbiont race of sufficiently advanced aliens, and they keep their existence hidden from a, you know, any sort of pre-utopian or pre-spacefaring race. And only until the race achieves, you know, space flight and some type of enlightenment, uh, then they can actually, you know, you can interact with them because otherwise that those fledgling races don't loot with them. They might lose their independence of mind and be contaminated by an outside culture. Yeah, this notion that advanced races ought to let less advanced races continue to develop at their own pace, whatever that might be. And there's a variety of reasons that get brought up in the context of cultural exchange that, that refer to things like that. I mean, within our own culture, you know, we have various groups who take a more measured pace, so to speak, for implementing technologies into their life, lifestyles. So these are primarily a Christian sects like the Amish or the Mennonites and so on. So that kind of thing is, is a willful choice that's recognized within uh, a, a subculture uh, that, you know, here in the United States, for example, though that's not necessarily the origin there, but that same thing, it's if we have the opportunity to engage with an impact or influence another race or another culture, we need to be careful about what happens and not, not disrupt their natural flow of things, or their natural is the wrong word there, but you know what I mean. Yeah, and I think we, in one of our previous episodes, we had talked about that sort of post-colonialism post period where people had kind of looked at the expansions of the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries and the effect those had on primitive cultures. And and again, you know, that that, soul, that the backlash against that type of culture is, is coming up in these stories. Well, and of course, it's in direct contrast to something like Oh, like Stargate, for example, where, and this, you know, makes reference to our 
archaeologists like Eric von Denneken, you know, Chariots of the Gods, you're referring to the gods in, in our earthbound human context being spacefarers. And then Stargate, of course, is a, is a film and then TV series, a couple of TV series that play that out where the gods are, in fact, aliens. And in Stargate, not only do they interfere with our cultures, they actually enslave the ancient Hebrews and, and take them back to their own planet, as well as putting them to work here on Earth. And let's be fair, you know, even in Star Trek, the Prime Directive has been played with pretty fast and loose by Kirk, among other people. And there's plenty of people who have debates about, hey, when and why, and does the Prime Directive really matter? It's like, it only matters until we feel like it doesn't, right? You know, depending on the circumstances. Is that a rule, or is it more of a guideline? Exactly. Yeah, we don't really know, but we just sort of see it as it's kind of a principle, but to be ignored if we really don't want to pay attention to it. So going on to a couple other things we find out in the story, or going on to a couple other things we see in this story, uh, one of the things that I find interesting is is sort of you get this arc, right, of any type of historical text, whether it's religious or, or any other type of you know, historical document going back hundreds or thousands of years, right? You get this... This idea that you've got the, the, the first event that kicks off somebody hey, says, hey, I need to write this thing down. So something happens, you get that firsthand interpretation of it, whether it's right or wrong, can be debated. You know, they, so you get that firsthand written account, and then over time, you, the story drifts, it changes, people add on, they subtract, they embellish. And they copy it over and over again, it gets published. And then eventually, after a while, no matter what the event is, it just sort of fades into obscurity to the point where it's just a footnote on a dusty shelf somewhere or the digital equivalent of a dusty shelf, whatever that is. Right. And so all that, that whole arc or that whole cycle is, is really captured in the, in the final moments of the short story where we've got this student, the student of, of the, the Gallic or Gaelic Federation who's in a library, picks one Bible up, and it happens to be this one that makes reference to the, the repercussions of this moment. Um, and then, like you said, puts it back on the shelf and grabs another one because the presumption here being that these mythologies, these spiritual tomes, texts, whatever they are, that they are common, that, that they're, you know, they're all over the galaxy and that this is a, a common kind of story. Yeah, it's presumed that last little section of the story is being written like, you know, hundreds or thousands of years later, maybe by this, you know, student of galactic civilizations and writing his, you know, thesis or term paper or something. And just as any character picks up the Robin Hood, King Arthur, you know, whatever the case may be, any, any character that, that has a sort of mythology that builds up around it, you know, presumably there's some sort of a, a nugget of truth or a nugget of something that was the inspiration for the stories, but then over time, like you said, they grow, they morph, they, they become more than they were until they are of these godly or at least demigodly kinds of stature. And, you know, that's, that's, those are the stories that we love to tell. Those are the stories that we recount, that we, that we store, and that we pass along. Well, it's interesting you mentioned King Arthur because it brings up this concept of what's what's known as the fiction contract because, you know, obviously nowadays in our society, we're very familiar with fiction versus nonfiction, but that wasn't always so. Uh, you know, all the way back in the early centuries, 
people didn't really have exposure to books. If they had exposure to any book, it was the Bible. And of course, it was true because the, the religious leaders told you so. So for a long time, anything that was written in a book was automatically assumed to be true, no matter what it was. There was no concept of fiction. And it wasn't even until the, the early 1100s or maybe the late 1100s that some of these guys who labored away, I guess, in the scriptoriums copying religious texts got bored and said, hey, what if we wrote something that, like, wasn't a religious text? And so they said, oh, well, we could write things that aren't the Bible. What, what could we possibly think of? And it turns out that, you know, King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table was one of those very first uh, expressions of what would be later known as fiction writing as opposed to nonfiction many, many cultures are revered for the fables that they shared through oral traditions. But you're absolutely right that, that when it came to writing things down, there weren't a lot of cultures, or there weren't a lot of moments where people were seeking to write anything down that was culturally based for a long time. And then when it was, it was, oh, well, what's important enough to hang on to? And that's where your spiritual texts come around. Yeah, I mean, even up until the 19th century, there was not even a, a distinction in libraries, for example, to divide literature into fiction and nonfiction. Yeah, and you know, th this comes or calls to mind a, a, a comical parallel for me to the film Galaxy Quest, where the television show that is Galaxy Quest, you know, that's broadcast. You know, the, the, for those who haven't seen it, you know, it's it's the Star Trek parody. I've got one job on this ship. It's stupid, but I'm gonna do it. Oh, my favorite line out of that movie. Exactly. <laughs> By Grapthar's hammer, yeah. So the the serial of of television, you know, like Star Trek, broadcast out into space, and a race of aliens receives them and perceives them as historical documents. In their culture, there's no such thing as a lie. They take it literally. Yes. So they they see it as as a documentary about the exploits of this heroic crew, and they seek that heroic crew out to fight a battle for them. You know, so they, it just plays with this whole notion of the truth or the the validity of those kinds of stories. Right. And you were talking earlier about how in the early histories that people only wrote things down that were considered, you know, very, very important. So, of course, they must be true. And, you know, writing a book's pretty darn hard back in the 11th and 12th century, and you don't get Gutenberg until the 1400s, Right. So you've got several hundred years or several thousand years where the only things getting written down are things that are, are really important and we got to preserve them. So therefore, they must be true. Then the, the printing press comes along and, well, hey, now you can print anything you want. Now, to be fair, the Chinese and the Koreans, we all know, had movable type well before Gutenberg. But hey, we're going to use him as the example since pretty much everybody knows who Gutenberg was. Yeah. And prior to that, you know, things were literally written on walls or written on a piece of high Clay tablets. Clay tablets, a piece of bark from a tree, you know, and they're written in charcoal or blood or inks that they make from plant juices and, and whatever the case may be. So I think those are called dyes. And there we inks. go. Well, yeah, but if they're plant <laughs> juices <laughs> that they make the dyes from. There's Fetch me my plant that. juice and some paper. I have an idea. <laughs> They have to make the dye is where I was going with that. <laughs> Where's my drinking juice? Oh, wait, that's beer. <laughs> Wheat juice. <sighs> so where were we? <laughs> anyway, uh, let's, let's kind of move back to some of our more traditional non-juice-related topics, which would be some of the dated and out-of-place elements in our story. 
And there's a few in here that I actually didn't quite get a reference to and still don't. One of them was they refer to Mary as being snapping-eyed. And I really couldn't quite figure out what snapping eyes or snapping eyed is, but the best I can surmise, it's like if you if you have like a piercing gaze that you suddenly focus on an object, you kind of snap your focus to it. That's the best I can come up with. It seemed in context to be a compliment, and so yeah, but you're right. I wasn't sure exactly what the what the connotation of the phrase might be. Yeah, and she works on the bitch board. Yeah, <laughs> another that, phrase. Where I'm like, I've that? never heard of a bitch board before, but it just sort of cast off as a oh yeah, it's a thing. I believe nowadays they're either boogie boards or skateboards or possibly snowboards. But back in the fifties and sixties, what the heck is it? It's I think it's like a navigation panel or something that's used to to pilot the ship. You know, the the board full of instruments and. I really don't know where that phrase came from, but it's like, damn, this board's a bitch, I guess. Yeah, the the both of those ideas, the snapping eyed and the bitch board, come from the same passage of text, literally on the first page, third paragraph. Mary Karadak, small, brunette, snapping eyed, the other half of extraterrestrial exploration team 2861, looked up from the bitch board where she had been dialing their course away from Sirius 4. So there you go. I guess you get to make up your own words. <laughs> whenever you write down a science fiction story. Hey, I do it all the time as a professor and as a writer, so, you know, why can't why can't he do it? Yeah, I was just dealing with my group farble the other day and <laughs> couldn't figure out how it worked, but Oh, who was it that we were talking about before that left behind that the the big legacy? Oh, was it um was it Williamson? Yeah, not Williamson, me. right? Who yeah. did like terraforming, I think, and some of the other words. Yeah, a bunch of stuff that's that's attributed to him. So you know, this is this is something that science fiction authors get to do. You know, you you need a good word. You're not really sure what to call something, so let's make something up. Like, but didn't Heinlein do Grok? Was that the big one? Yes, I think so. He yeah, Grok things. So I I, I we like covered that. Heinlein yet? Oh yeah, we did cover Heinlein. Yeah, that's we, right. I can't even remember episode nine. They. You're way more up to date on what we do than I am. You made reference before to uh, to the pencil flash. Yes, the pencil flash. Or the pen light. Which I guess, like I said, it's it. a pen light. I'm not sure what pencil flashlight, pen light, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Well, maybe they didn't have many pens yet. And then, of course, we had the whole discussion earlier about just the whole idea of a married couple sailing off into space and not getting a divorce at the end. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about that kind of an arrangement showing up in a science fiction story specifically. And the only other one that comes to mind right away is um, Lost in Space, where you've got a whole family that is part of the exploration crew. And and they are, you know, well, off doing their, their exploratory expeditions. And presumably, the you know, rather than break up a family rather than some, send somebody off that where they might not be back for a very long time or they might not return ever, I suppose. You send the whole family, although that means if there are kids involved, as in the case with um, Lost in Space, that they all get put in danger from time to time. And they also, well, I mean, it's actually a pretty common thing to see, mostly in stories that deal with things like colonization of other worlds, where entire families are, are usually cryogenically frozen or something to be awakened on the frontier, or at least like one of the member of the family goes ahead to do such a thing, and then all the other ones follow at some point in time. And I think there's probably been a few, and, and I've, if I remember correctly, there were a few of the early Star Trek episodes where they would 
be on a planet and there would be like an archaeologist and his wife working on the same dig or something like that. So I guess it's it's not really that uncommon, at least in some of the earlier science fiction. But nowadays, I I just don't see it see don't see it very much in any of the literature that that I peruse. Maybe it's kind of an outmoded concept. And and probably what's more notable about it is that they are they are presented as equals. You know, where they they each have responsibilities. There doesn't seem to be a lot of. Uh, well, there, there doesn't seem to be necessarily a, a pecking order, so to speak, or a, a rank system that they, they are just out there exploring. And when they yep, need to make a decision... There's a clear definition of duties. You yeah. stay on your side of the ship, I stay on mine, even though apparently it's only 60 feet long, which I guess if you have enough doors, you can get away from the other person if you really want to. But she's not there to have, or, you know, to, to be the person who cooks and cleans or does the, the space laundry and she has a last name, which is a wonderful thing, because so many of our female characters that have showed up in stories that we've talked about so far only have first names. So overall, you know, looking at what we've talked about so far, if you want to haul out the old scale of whoa, hmm, and what the fuck, what's, uh, what's your first take on this story, Bill? That's a good question. I think that with in this, there there really isn't much of a woe or much of a what the fuck for me at all with this. It's 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 a story that's meant to be a hmm, and it's meant to to draw us into thinking about you know what would we do or what would our culture do in this kind of a situation, and also thinking about you know origin tales, you know how how do things begin and and what do stories become over time. And so I think it's just a it, it's a it's a series of elements that are supposed to make you think. Yeah, I'm I'm a little bit more on the woe side, and the only reason I go there is by that very last transition. If he would have ended the story with just the whole you know scriptural you know, conversion of the original thing into the scriptural text, you know that's one thing. That's kind of you know picking on the the idea of how historical texts get mangled over time and told and retold and lost and found and translated and untranslated and mucked about with, you know, that that's one whole thing to make. But then at the very end where he takes it from that to the idea that, oh, by the way, all this crap's irrelevant in the end. And, you know, given long enough time periods, all these things that people think of are these momentous and fantastic events that people are, you know, wrangle their hands over and argue about that in the end, after a few hundred or thousand years, who really cares? It's just, like I said, a footnote. No, you know, somebody looks at it and goes, eh, that happened. Cool. And moves along. Yeah, you're right. So that that to me takes it from mostly a hmm story to that last that's the thing where he makes it into a woe. It's almost like the Sentinel, right? Where you get that that idea, like in the Sentinel, where the the protagonist goes on that journey of of thinking about you know just his local solar system and his local time frame to all of a sudden being thrust into thinking on the scale of millions of years. That's also kind of where Bixby's taking this. He's taking the reader from. Here's something that happens on this time scale and extends it to the next and then way to the far future and and how the story changes in those or as seen from those different time periods. In that regard, it reminds me of the last scene of the film Men in Black, the first in the series, where after all of the events of, of the film are done, you know, we zoom out from the planet and the planet turns out to be a marble carried around by some space alien and it's being used in a game of of intergalactic marbles and oh by the way the whole thing is inside of a 
is it is it inside of a locker at a at a space terminal or something like that or a, but the the idea being that our world is just a plaything for the universe. Yep, and whatever you think is that important right now, it's probably not in the long term. So don't stress about it. That's right. Yeah, just reading uh, references to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and the whole notion of, of what does 42 really mean, speaking of the significance of things. You know, the meaning of life is, is 42. And uh, a new theory, a new theory, a recent theory that was posed by someone who understands ASCII code is basically that 42 is the ASCII for the asterisk, which in coding terms can basically mean anything you want it to be. So our universe is a wild card. Thus spake Dan. And lo, Bill did come down from the mountain where he had been wool gathering. And upon his shoulder there was a tablet, and upon that tablet was written the name of the next episode of the TBD podcast. The next tale of which we shall speak is none other than Inferiority by James Causey.